0: instead of writing the low-level machine learning code, you're actually declaring from the scheme of the data actually what you want, mm-hmm. and then the details of how the model is assembled, and the actual code path and process for training it and using it for prediction and uh, evaluating it. You don't need to, to write them, mm-hmm. right? So that's why it is, uh, I consider it to be a declarative system.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Data Scientist Show. Today, we have Piero Molino. Piero is a researcher turned founder and CEO. He was one of the founding members of Uber AI Labs. He worked on several deployed ML systems, including an NLP model for customer support and Uber Eats recommender system with graph learning and collision detection. Later, he became a staff research scientist at Stanford University working on machine learning systems and algorithms in Professor Chris Ray's Hazy Group. He completed a PhD in question answering at the University of Bali, Italy. He is the author of Ludwig, with uh, over uh, 8,900 stars on GitHub, an open source declarative deep learning framework. In 2021, he co-founded Predibase, a local declarative machine learning platform built on top of Ludwig. Today, we will talk about his career journey, project he worked on at Uber AI, uh, how he created Ludwig and built Predibase. As a researcher in NLP, what are his hot takes on large language models, and how will it reshape the industry and data scientists' day-to-day work? If you enjoy the show, subscribe to the channel, leave a comment, and give me a five-star review. Welcome to the show, Piero.
0: (laughs) Thank you for having me, Dariana. I really appreciate it. You know, uh, being here, I think it's going to be a fun conversation.
1: Yeah, I'm excited. So, how did you get into machine learning?
0: Yeah, so um, honestly, at the beginning, I was not, when I was studying computer science, I was not doing it. I didn't know what machine learning was to begin with, right? Actually, I was in it because I wanted to uh, learn to build video games. Mm. But then, while I was studying, I discovered about, um, in particular, there was like this specific a coursework that I was doing on information retrieval and recommender systems. And so, recommender systems were my way in into machine learning. Mm-hmm. I was really curious about how, you know, um, objects of any kind, in particular unstructured objects, like, you know, um, items with text descriptions, images, um, you know, would be recommended to people. And I discovered that, you know, machine learning was the way that that was achieved. And then I dived deeper into machine learning and the language side of it, NLP. Uh, and that was like my, my way in, into, into the field, I would say. Oh, cool.
1: And uh, later, you got into Uber AI Labs. So how did you get hired?
0: Oh, it was like <laughs> it's a long and winding road, I would say. So um, after I graduated, actually, I moved to um, New York. And I started working in IBM Watson. Mm-hmm. Uh, because my research when I was doing my PhD was on open domain question answering, as you mentioned. And so it was a really good fit in terms of topics, right? Um, and um, after that, I joined a small startup in New York that was called Geometric Intelligence, funded by a bunch of you know, uh, professors in the machine learning space. I think people may know, for instance, some of them, like you know, Gary Marcus and Zubin Garamani, who is now like one of the most senior directors at Google on the AI side. Um, and that startup got acquired by Uber, and that's how we ended up there. And so mm. we got uh, got acquired to become the core, the initial core of the Uber organization.
1: Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. And uh, uh, you worked on a lot of projects while you were at Uber, so maybe we can start with this one. Uh, you use graph learning to recommend dishes on Uber Eats. Can you tell us a little bit of this project, what are the challenges, and how did you tackle it?
0: Yeah. First of all, there were like many people involved. I was not the only mm-hmm. one involved with the project. In particular, I keep Jane uh, did a lot of work um, with me on that, and you know all the people from Uber Eats side, like Isaac Liu. Um, and um, yeah, so basically, the way I got involved with it is that um, I was you know doing some research on the um, graph neural networks, uh, because at the moment, they were like a new shiny toy, and I was trying to find uh, something interesting to do with those, right? Mm. Um, I thought that they could be particularly useful for recommender systems because um, one of the inspiring papers was, you know, this paper on PinSage, which was a system developed at Pinterest. That was probably the first um, industrial system, like enterprise system that I know of, that was using graph neural networks. And um, ours probably was the second, I would say, after that. Mm. And um, in their case, they were recommending pins to users. In our case, We thought that the problem was a little bit more complex and probably more rich, because it contained, um, it was not just a bipartite graph. It was like a graph containing users, dishes, but also restaurants. And also, there could be other entities, like cuisines and other uh, more abstract concepts, if you want. And so we adapted some of the ideas from Pinsage, but we introduced new ones. Because, for instance, in Pinsage, the graphs were um, really treated as, again, unlabeled un- un- bipartite graph. In our case, there were weights mm-hmm. on the edges and different types of entities also involved. So instead of doing like a graph neural network, we're doing what is really like a, um, um, multi-graph, actually hypergraph um, um, neural network where the hypergraph had weights on the, on the edges. So it was something slightly new but really interesting and in the end what uh, we discovered is that by using these kind of techniques we could get like a substantial lift in the performance of the models offline mm-hmm. and also lift online but the most interesting thing was the how i would say how the changing behavior of the users was reflected into the embedding space that mm-hmm. we were learning and so we were, we had like embeddings before and after some users interactions and you could clearly see the change in the semantic space mm-hmm. of the dishes that they like from one to another. And as a consequence, the issues that were recommended to them.
1: Yeah. Well, that, that's interesting. Uh, I read an article saying sometimes the better your model is, the faster the model is going to obsolete because the model changes users' behavior and uh, it changes um, uh, the model's performance. So in this case, when users interact with the model differently, how do you factor that feedback and retrain the model?
0: Yeah, that's a very important point. And there's also some other learnings from that that are also relevant. I would say, in terms of the retraining strategy, uh, we had an entire pipeline. We spent a lot of time, like coming up, coming up with a, with a pipeline that made it very easy to retrain on um, actually on, on a time-based. Mm-hmm. It was like um, simple in the logic of the retraining, but it was complex in well, actually needed to, be, to happen for the retraining, because yeah. we were dealing with large graphs there. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so actually, what we were doing is, um, on a regular basis, we were retraining using um, the new interactions that the users, actually using all the interactions within a certain time window that the user has done. And that would include the new interaction, also because you want to make it so that um, the next time that the user uses mm. your 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 platform that includes the recommender system, they get new and fresher uh, suggestions. Right. But at the same time, in particular for the specific applications for reads, um the use is still like it's it's unlikely that the user will use it more than once a day. Mm. And so, for that reason, retraining for more than once a day was not right. that useful. Right. Um, I don't remember exactly when, when we landed there, mm. but. Again, um, so just the training for photon cadence was the solution, more or
1: less. Gotcha. And when you say time-based uh, with this cadence, do you have a <clears throat> kind of moving window, uh, selecting, say, like a moving 12 months or, say, three months data or uh, to retrain the model completely, or you just update a model with? The most recent information without uh, retraining the entire model. Yeah,
0: so there were different components in the model, really, and the graph neural were a part of that component mm-hmm. that, of that you know of the whole larger system, right? And so, um, graph neural networks have this nice capability of um, being able to learn in a inductive way, where if you have like a new node in a graph, you can just obtain the representation of that node by a form of aggregation over the representation of the nodes that you already have. Mm-hmm. And so you're leveraging the connections uh, to, to other nodes to be able to obtain these representations. Yeah. And so that part didn't need to be retrained that often mm-hmm. because of the fact that you know these capabilities, other parts of the model, like the final ranking um, algorithm, was not as, um, I would say, didn't have these inductive properties. Mm-hmm. And so that part needed to be retrained more often, I would say.
1: Oh, got it. Uh, Let's talk about the Customer Obsession Ticket System. I like the name of the system, Customer Obsession. It's not just customer service. Uh, It reduced over 16% of time spent on handling the ticket without decreasing customer satisfaction. Uh, Can you tell us more about this project? Sure,
0: sure. Um, By the way, the reason why it was called that way is because there was a Value, you know, one of the like company values it was customer obsession. that mm-hmm. was actually probably mutated from from Amazon. Yeah. It also has that value, right? And and so that percolated all the way to the end <laughs> this project. I was not the one making that decision, but you know, I think it's like yeah. Um, so specifically on that project, basically it was a collaboration also in this case with many people, including in particular Wai Shu from from like the uh, then. Um, Applied uh, machine learning team, a team, at, at, um at Uber, mm-hmm. uh, and the you know team that was working directly on customer support. Right, uh, there were a few interesting things there. So we tried many different um, algorithms and approaches uh, to do that, and um, in particular, we started from like more traditional um, uh, statistical models uh, combined with feature extraction from text, um, and they were performing okay. Uh, then we started using uh, neural networks. In particular, we compared many different architectures and we landed on, in that case, was uh, convolutional neural networks specifically because of a good compromise between performance and speed of training and speed of inference. And the interesting thing, though, is that in that project it was not just you know pure tax classification. It was a combination of uh, tax classification combined with Additional features that we were collecting uh, based on the user behavior. Mm. So actually, some features were specifically for the users, independent of their behavior. Like were they using the app from the driver app, from the um, uh, eats app, or from the rider app? Mm-hmm. That made a difference, right? Yeah. Um, some additional information about you know their um, their past interactions with the platform, like how many times have they reached out to customer support before. How often do they do it? Have they reached out already in the last few days, for mm-hmm. instance, right, to figure out if it was a follow-up or not? Yeah. Um, there was also additional information related to the actual interaction that they had with um, Uber at the time, which, for instance, if they were using um, the Rider app, that uh, meant that they basically, um, the um, ride information was also contained into, um, taken into account by the model to make the, its prediction, right? And that basically um, included like, if the um, ride was canceled or not, how expensive it was, how long it was, um, all of that. Because obviously, depending if the ride was canceled, for instance, there was a really good indication that probably the issue was about that. Yeah. Um, And so that made the problem rich and interesting, and also um, made it so that there was actually the first uh, version of Ludwig, really, was the code base for solving these tasks. Right? Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that we will chat a little bit more about Ludwig yeah. later, but um, the fact that there were like multiple types of um, features and mm-hmm. multiple types of data in general used for, uh, for training these models um, made so that I made some decisions in Ludwig around
1: it. Mm-hmm. And uh, so before we talk more about Uh, Ludwig. um, I'm curious. So for this project, um, you probably have some metrics around measuring the machine learning model performance, and then you also have business metrics to make sure um, customer satisfaction doesn't decrease. Uh, So when you are creating this system, when you are doing the test, how do you balance the machine learning metrics versus those business metrics?
0: Yeah. So in, specifically, actually, to be precise about what the system was doing, mm-hmm. actually, it was doing um, multiple tasks. Originally, we had separate models. And then with the use of Ludwig and uh, Deep Learning Models, we had trained a multi, multi-task model for doing all of them at once. Mm-hmm. And one of the tasks was identifying what type of issue it was. Um, related to the ticket was related to um, from like a list of I don't remember exactly the number, but probably like six thousand different classes. Yeah, so it was like a pretty rich uh, kind of set of classes. Then um, depending on that, also what was the action to be taken, mm-hmm. uh, like to give a, an appeasement or to like delete a user from the platform or to cancel a ride or whatever. There were like several, um, I think about hundred different uh, types of issues, mm-hmm. um, actions that the system could take. And then there was the defining um, what template uh, among the different template for responding to the user um, the customer support representative should use. And this is because the system was like a system for supporting the customer support representative or was intended to replace them, right? And um, with regards to evaluation, obviously, each of these tasks has a different evaluation, really. and. Um, we were defining um, performance in these tasks in different ways. But in particular, the most important thing for us, which was really the bottom line, was how good were we at all these tasks at once on the syndicate. Yeah. So the very bottom line evaluation criterion was how accurate we were uh, at getting all three tasks exactly correct. Um, at the same time, um, because of the fact that in the end, um, these um, uh, you know models would produce uh, predictions that would be used by the customer support representatives, and these customer support representatives had UIs that contained basically three uh, entries. Mm-hmm. Uh, we decided that um, figuring out if the correct prediction was within the first three of the ones suggested mm-hmm. was actually the most valuable thing. Right. Yeah. And so that is was the offline metric that we were using, right? And um, usually you want to have like both online, more business-oriented metrics, and offline metrics because the offline metrics you can evaluate them um, as as you go and as many times as you want. It's inexpensive to run them, right. while the business metrics usually in, require interacting with users, interacting with the real systems, mm-hmm. and so they are more expensive in general to collect, right? Yeah. And so uh, once, and so we used the offline metrics to be sure that the model was doing something that was uh, correct, mm-hmm. to with. and once we had enough conviction in that, then we analyzed the metrics from like live metrics from, from the actual system. What we did was a pretty straightforward like A/B test where we were testing either not using uh, the um, suggestions at all, with compared with using the suggestions coming from the model. And we were about a bunch of things. Obviously, how long did it take for the customer support representatives to um, solve the ticket? Mm-hmm. Um, but also, um, when the ticket was solved, the uh, users would have like a way to express their um, appreciation right. or not, yeah. um, their satisfaction in general. And so, the you know one doesn't need you know. Let me put it this way: if one can be easily blinded by the fact that you know, a metric-like um, time of completion of a ticket mm. is reduced. But there's a really easy way to reduce the, um, the time that it takes to, to, to complete a ticket, which is just you know, to close the ticket mm-hmm. without doing anything. Right? Yeah. And that doesn't translate, obviously, in a great customer satisfaction. Mm-hmm. There would be like customer satisfaction would go substantially down if you know, that's what the customer support is worth doing, right? So we wanted to make sure that both things were improving, or at the very least, that if one was improving, the other one was not decreasing. Right? Yeah. And so for us, it was really important to see that the customer satisfaction did not decrease; actually, increased a little bit, mm. while at the same time reducing the time to solve the ticket dramatically. Right? right. So it was very important to have both sides because if you had only one, then you know there would not be like a good outcome for the company and for the users.
1: Right. So you leverage um, A/B tests to uh, make sure you're not hurting um, customer experience. So I guess in this case, the primary metrics to measure is to reduce the time it takes that was initial motivation. And then the secondary metric, metri- or like the guardrail, is uh, uh, customer satisfaction.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: Um, so when you're looking at those metrics, are you uh, mostly looking at those g- aggregated metrics, or do you also look at those specific examples when customers really unsatisfied to understand the reason and trying to tie that back to uh, how the model works
0: we did both Mm -hmm. actually the more let's say detailed analysis um obviously have is the one you can do offline Mm -hmm. because you can have like retrain a model you know look at its prediction uh, try to address them uh, address the you know the most uh Clear failure cases yeah. and iterate more quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, doing the sort of analysis on top of the business metric and when you actually run it um, is—I mean—you can definitely do it, and you shouldn't be doing it. But it's then difficult to integrate that into the product or, or into the model, mm-hmm. um, just because of a, you know speed of the cycle of iteration that you have there, right? Yeah. Um, but definitely, we did both more offline than online. But we did this kind of analysis for both.
1: Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, is there anything kind of interesting or unexpected you learn from this process?
0: There are some things that I'm, that I'm not for sure that I can, oh, that I can okay. disclose. Yeah. There were a few things. Mm-hmm. I think the one thing that was um, particularly interesting in my mind was to um, analyze differently some types of tickets, if you want. Um, because of the fact that some of them were substantially more important than mm-hmm. others, um, a, a clear example is tickets that are related to safety. Yeah. So um, actually, one thing that we did on top of the model, so the model was producing like the predictions and the probabilities and these top three for all these different tasks mm-hmm. that we were doing. Yeah. Um, but there was like a um, system that we put in place that was just you know a very simple set of rules to decide what to do. These predictions, Mm -hmm. and if the um, probability uh, coming from the model was above a certain threshold for all the three tasks, and the type of ticket was not among the ones that were safety related or anything like dangerous, really, Mm -hmm. uh, then we there was a chance to answer automatically to the the user, like like. Maybe it was like an FAQ style question, right? Mm-hmm. And so that was the kind of thing that we were answering automatically. Uh, if it was like a safety issue, then always a human was involved in mm-hmm. answering it. And if the probability from the model was above a certain threshold, we would give the suggestion to the users. Right. And if it was below a certain threshold, we will not give the suggestion to the users because we thought it was more noise for them than useful. Yeah. And so because of that, we spend a lot of time analyzing the issues specifically within the buckets of the most safety-related ones mm. and the most you know, uh, security and safety-related yeah. ones. Right? And we had different policies for them. Mm-hmm. And we spent all the time looking at those because we wanted to make sure that those were not you know, impacted by any um, potentially weird decisions from the front. Right? Yeah. We had a lot of better analysis there to make sure that right. there were not errors there um, as much as possible.
1: Right? Yeah, this is really interesting because not every ticket is the same, or different categories of the issues can be treated um, equally. And then this requires a lot of uh, domain knowledge and context regarding um, the safety and security. I think you probably also work with those team, making those policies to understand it, and then um, translate back to how you recommend people uh, using this this model. And so you, you worked at Uber. AI labs. Is it a uh, central AI team for Uber? For
0: yeah, now things may be slightly different. When mm-hmm. I was there, it was like a, a centralized team, and we were both doing research mm-hmm. and collaborating with um, other teams, product teams, and more production teams mm-hmm. to put the latest and greatest, uh, you know, developments from research and apply them um, into. Machine learning tasks that were then useful for products, and those two that we discussed about were examples of like taking the latest and greatest um, things from research and putting them into production. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in the case of quota, for instance, there was the, to the best of my knowledge, the best, the, the first uh, machine learning uh, model deployed at Uber. There was actually a deep learning model. Yeah. Sense, right. Wow. And for graph neural networks, the same was mm-hmm. like the first graph neural network model yeah. used at Uber. Right?
1: So, oh, very cool. And uh, how did those problems come to you? Is it because you think those um, like graph neural network or deep learning are important, then you're looking at some problem to solve, or those say product team came to you that have those challenges, and then you you prioritize those problems and then you pick one to solve?
0: So it was surely more the second, more yeah. like product teams coming out with yeah. what they. Um, Want to achieve and what they need for their part of the project they're working on, yeah. and us trying to figure out what is the best um, technique from from you know from the literature and from our knowledge that would address that specific problem. Yeah, and um, in particular because you know, we were a team that was doing both research and applications, we were particularly interested in applying this. You know, new algorithms, mm. and, new, and new ideas yeah. to these these problems, but obviously there was only in service of making the best, um, uh, you know, the best solution possible, right? Not yeah. um, if, if the, in some cases, uh, simple solutions um, are, you know, absolutely uh, perfect yeah. for the problems for <laughs> some the, some constraints. Like if yeah. you're considering. Anything that involves like extremely low latency, maybe you know, like the the uh, large deep learning model may not have been like the best solution. Right. But because, for instance, in that phase that was not an incredible concern. Mm-hmm. Like, we could have taken a few seconds to to run the predictions. So, yeah. You know, that was uh, the best solution for that use case, right? Mm-hmm. So we were also particularly interested in figuring out what was the best for that specific problem, not the best, just for the sake of using the latest research. There yeah. Was not. Being done,
1: right? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of times when data scientists started their career in industry, they feel uh, frustrated because there are a lot of constraints. They cannot always use the state of the art model in their in the research. But I think it's important to remember our job is to solve a uh, business problem, uh, and especially I think you mentioned a great point. There's no need to over engineer, over a solution. Um, and uh, when we do research sometimes we'll spend months or years to improve just say one percent or point one percent of the performance but in the industry um, we have more deadlines so how do you decide when a solution is good enough to
0: launch Mm -hmm. actually i would say there's even an additional thing that was a lesson learned from the uber eats um, use case Mm -hmm. where you can have even much larger Gains offline, like the system that we were developing, got something like twenty percent absolute AUC improvement, which was like huge, right? Mm-hmm. And then you put them into production, and the downstream uh, business metric yeah. may or may not have uh, an improvement. In yeah. our case, it had an improvement. But yeah. It was like I don't remember exactly. But it was between three and five percent, which was not twenty percent mm-hmm. improvement that was uh, observed in offline, right? Yeah. Um, I think there's many considerations to be done there because. Um really, and in particular, for me, the lesson learned is that the UI is so important in determining mm. um, the effect of what you're doing that um, you know one needs to take into, that into consideration a lot. In the specifics of so Uber Eats, right, um, if you're familiar with the UI of the app, you know that there are some, like, basically, it's a vertical app that scrolls, yeah. and w- there's different sections. And then within the sections, there's carousels that go horizontally. Mm -hmm. And so for us, for instance, uh, the carousel that we were working on was the carousel of the dishes. And it was not the first one that was appearing. Mm -hmm. And so in some cases, um, it was not even like, in some sessions, they were not even shown to the user. The user would not scroll all the way to that point. right? So you may have made the best recommendations Mm -hmm. in the world, but if the user does, does not see them, that's kind of pointless, right? Right. And so the point is um, one needs to be aware of the things uh, to um, when they are evaluating mm-hmm. how impactful a system could yeah. be on, on the users. And the um, other aspect is to define the success criteria in a way that is both aligned with the um, business and the bottom line, but at the same time realistic. Because in this case, for instance, we realized that probably the best way to evaluate it would be not considering all the sessions, but only the sessions where the actual predictions were shown to the user. Yeah. Right? Which is, you know, you want to have like a lift in general mm. for the business, which is great. But at the same time, if, if you have a, don't have a chance mm-hmm. to make the lift for the business, you should not be evaluated on, on the cases where you are not having a chance to that.
1: Right? Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, and maybe to get back to your specific, specifically your question, which was about when you know when a project is done, really, mm-hmm. um, you don't know. But at the same you never know. So yeah. you, you need to draw a line of the drawing time. But at the same time, there are some indications of, mm-hmm. um, of progress. And you can clearly see, on one hand, if you're given a deadline, and that, that, that's that you have to respect, mm-hmm. there, there's no way around it. On the other hand, you can also observe um, the progress that you are doing. And in most cases, in my experience, all these products get to a point of diminishing returns mm-hmm. when tuning and improving and doing squeezing that last drop of performance from your models uh, starts to take longer and longer and longer. Mm-hmm. And so then it's like a, a logarithm. So there's an elbow, of the logarithm, and you want to get to the point where you, know, you realize that the amount of effort that you're putting is not increasing the performance substantially, Mm -hmm. that's probably a good time to actually cut.
1: Right. Um, And uh, when you uh, work with stakeholders from, in the beginning, scoping the project, coming out with some suggestions, to, in the end, deploying it to the system, what does the entire um, cycle look like, if you can break it down the small steps of the projects? Um, In my experience,
0: what I've been doing was not um, substantially different from what is considered to be like, uh, we say, standard. Um, the whole process was like an iterative process mm-hmm. that started from um, understanding the problem in detail uh, as much as possible. And obviously, you know, there's part of the understanding that comes also after fact, but you need to start from somewhere. And so first yeah. step of understanding the problem, um, which also comes with understanding the data at the same time, mm-hmm. right? Because Uh, The data that is available for you um, uh, is like a huge um, description of the different fields of the tables or whatever your data, however it is structured, uh, makes a lot of the uh, understanding of the problem too, right? Uh, It's not all of it, because there's also procedures and how this data is generated that is very important. Mm -hmm. Um, But understanding the data to begin with, it's a great starting point. And then um, defining features and things that you know, believe are believed to be impactful for um, mm-hmm. determining whatever is that we're going to predict mm-hmm. in the machine learning project. Um, definitely is the next step. And then, usually, um, my approach is to like come up with some quick um, version, either in some case, rule based or like very, very lightweight models that make it possible for. Um, having like an end-to-end pipeline that then feeds back into whatever it needs to like uh, uh, produce the outputs to mm-hmm. very quickly yeah. and once that is set then you can start to iterate and improve both your understanding of the problem improving the features improving the models and all continuously getting mm-hmm. to a point of where it' perform
1: yeah so quickly get a data baseline yeah.
0: yeah yeah absolutely
1: and uh, uh, I wonder whether you had those situations where you're not ready to launch a solution, but a stakeholder really want to launch it, or uh, you feel the model is ready, but the stakeholder worry about some risks. So, when have you ever had those situations?
0: So, um, the first case, no. So, pushing out a model earlier than than it was, you know, than I felt it was ready. <laughs> I, I, that has not happened. Yeah. Um, I, I, again, you can imagine that in other situations that may be the reality for some people, mm-hmm. but in my case, it was not the case. It was you know um, always the case of uh, getting to a good enough state, yeah, and then you know figuring out um, the rollout mm-hmm. after that, right? Um, and regarding the uh, safeguards and you know having you know concerns about you know. Um, me feeling that something was ready, and other people feeling that it was not ready. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say the biggest example of that was a situation where there was a misalignment in the way uh, the performances needed to be evaluated, because uh, both from a, like a, a purely offline way and more for like a, a business performance aspect, um and those were the cases where like it was the hardest for me mm. um I think and that taught me to try to get as much alignment as possible from the very 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 beginning
1: yeah
0: it's not that in that case we didn't have alignment but you know the alignment was not deep enough so that mm-hmm. then when the models were put into to test for real then we discovered that there were like things that could have changed yeah um, in particular, that was not the best way to evaluate them after fact, mm-hmm. um, but that it was yeah. like too late to make the change. Yeah. It like, at that point, people were already you know, sold that it was the way to evaluate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so spending more time on evaluation, understanding for real what's to be evaluated, and how and precisely um, all the downstream uh, pieces and aspects that go from the model all the way to the way that it is evaluated, that is very important. Um, I can give you a concrete example of that. Sure. And the you know the case of the carousel that I was mentioning mm-hmm. before, there was uh, a model that we were not aware of at the very beginning, mm. that was deciding which carousels were shown mm. above or, or below. Okay. And that model used some absolute values coming from the uh, you know model for the carousel to determine how you know convinced the um, Predictions in the carousels were, mm-hmm. and so if they were really convinced, then it would be pushed to the top of the uh, app. If they were not super convinced, they would be pushed to the da- down. Mm-hmm. But that was done on absolute values, meaning that the distribution of predictions from our model was different from the distribution of predictions from other models. They were not normalized, and so the you know our carousels end up being at the very bottom, at least oh. independently of the quality. Yeah. It was just a matter of specifically normalization and numerical values right. and so you know we didn't know about that that, that model behaved that way mm-hmm. we discovered it only after fact but it was too late to yeah. change it um, to make it so that you know they would take into account what our model was, was mm-hmm. predicting to right um, there were some things that were changed after fact to you know make it so that our model actually was, was used for real but um, that was like a moment of friction right.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, I think this is probably happened to a lot of data scientists. Uh, I think it's important to know how this model will be used eventually, um, especially taking consideration of the UX, UI of an app. Um, sometimes, like you mentioned, the feature you develop, nobody is using it. It doesn't matter how good it is if people don't use it. Um, you know that you can't evaluate and you can measure the business impact or sometimes people's attention is also limited on the app when you show multiple carousels there's also this competition right. um, maybe there's some uh, we call it cannibalization effect uh, if those are uh, something similar um, just think about for example on Amazon detail page there's like customer bought this also bought that or like similar products and sometimes to customer those things looks similar and they don't know what to choose. And if you're working on one product, you need to think about where else do people look at it on this uh, entire screen. Sometimes it's it's not that uh, uh, trivial, but we need to have awareness of that. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned uh, uh, stakeholder interest alignment. so. Do you have some practical tips on how to align with stakeholders in the beginning? For example, do you write down all the requirements, or um, what are something data scientists can do?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I think you should always start from like a, a PRD, like a, at the very least a product, if not an engineering, but a product yeah. document that outlines what you're doing. How it's gonna be used, how it's mm-hmm. gonna be evaluated, how it's gonna be, you know, um, in the end put into the hands of whoever is gonna use it for real. Um, and have that clarity first. Mm-hmm. Definitely start with a PRD on the percent.
1: Yeah. Um, and uh so now let's talk a little bit more about Ludwig. You mentioned mm-hmm. while you are working on this um customer obsession ticket system, you notice there is some text data or tabular data, different type of modality. Um, what were the uh, initial challenges there, and what was the motivation for you to build Woodwick?
0: Yeah, so um, I would say the motivation for, for building it was that um, that project happened over a course of a few months, mm-hmm. right? And so at the beginning, we only had access to the textual data. Mm-hmm. And then gradually, we got access to the additional data uh, about the users, about their trips, about their behavior, and all of that. right? And so I saw a pattern that we would get gradually more data. And so I thought, well, Mm. instead of having to change my code base and retrain the models and all of that every single time that we got Mm. some additional piece of information, um, I should probably make something generic so that whenever there's a new piece of information that comes in, it takes me like a second. To be able to uh, add, include the additional piece of information, yeah. into the model, Right. Mm-hmm. And then the same thing happened for the tasks. At the beginning, we were just um, predicting the type of issue, mm-hmm. and then the other tasks came in. And so I thought, well, I should build something generic. So that if there's a new task that comes in, it, it takes me like a second to be able to add a new one, um, as opposed to like spending all the time to re-implement parts of the code, right? Mm-hmm. To do this. To do it, and um, I would say the nice thing about approaching it that way meant that um, the system, instead of being like a customer support system, became like a more general deep learning um, framework that, at that moment in time, could do anything with text and additional structured data. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you know, um, other people in the company started using it for other singular tasks that were like more Again, text plus tabular data. if you want uh, that I was not expecting. I, I, not expecting. I mean, I was not involved with this product, so they just started, you know, taking mm-hmm. it and using it mm-hmm. on their own, right? I didn't design for it. I was not like no one came to me and said, "Oh, you should build a system for the rest <laughs> of the company, yeah. uh, a platform for the, rest of the company to use," yeah. right? I just built something that was useful for me mm-hmm. uh, because I was lazy because I didn't want to. Spend reinvent the wheel every single time a new feature will right. come in or any new project will come my way, mm-hmm. um, and then other people used it and it was like the, the, the beginning of it, right? And then we added also other features like you know the images and all sorts of other things to make it even more general and applicable across the board. Mm-hmm. But um, the inception of it was just to make something that will make my life easier. Honestly,
1: yeah. Uh, and how did your coworkers discover this project?
0: So at Uber there was this thing that is like internal open source to some extent, mm-hmm. uh, meaning that um, we were using oh, I don't remember the name of the tool. Uh, there was, it's like if you you, you can imagine that it was something like an internal GitHub. Gotcha. Where you would put your your code and mm-hmm. everybody would put their code, so everybody else could have access to everybody else's code mm-hmm. um, internally. And so people discovered it there at the beginning. And then also um, other people like were product teams coming to us uh, as Uber AI. And so when they were speaking to with me, I would say, well, I mean you should use this because mm. this will make also your life yeah. really easier. And so sometimes I would handhold them uh, to use it. And you know, one of the main things in Ludwig is that instead of writing the code, you just need to write the configuration, right? Mm. And so I would then hold them and maybe provide them the first configuration to get started, and they will go from there and, and start using it.
1: Yeah. And for folks who uh, never used Ludwig before, maybe we can take a step back. Can you explain yeah. to us what exactly is Ludwig, when you say configuration, what does it look like? Is it in Python or something?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a Python project. Mm-hmm. So it's um, written in Python. Uh, originally, it was on top of TensorFlow. Now, we ported it to PyTorch. Now, a couple of years ago, now we put it to PyTorch. And basically, it's a mechanism for training, uh, for building, training, and evaluating, and then also deploying um, deep learning models um, with uh, PyTorch deep learning models that does not require you to write the level code. Mm-hmm. Um, what it requires you to write is a configuration file, which is basically a YAML file. It could also be like uh, JSON or any other structured format. It's not super important. It's a YAML. But the important thing is that it contains um, um, a really easy to um, define structure mm-hmm. that, if you follow that structure, then it makes it very easy to build the model. And um, it's very easy to get started, so you can just specify what are your, the inputs and what are the outputs uh, from your data. So if you have a table with um, uh, 10 columns, and eight of them are inputs and two of them are outputs, you have one entry in the configuration file for each of them. And you also specify the data type for each. And a data type could be it's a category, it's a binary value, it's a number, it's a text field, or it's an image, or it's a piece of audio. Mm. Um, there's many other uh, data types supported. And um, and so basically, by defining the schema of the data, you're also defining the, the actual machine learning model implicitly, mm-hmm. because a model is assembled for you to solve that task. Yeah, and this is how you get started with it, and then you can tune and modify all additional parameters that are like hidden by default, but you can like change or modify as you as mm-hmm. you need. Right? For instance, you can change um, the architectures that are used for, for instance, encoding text. Or you can decide like which encoder to use, what parameters. If you want to use Bert, or if you want to use like um, an LSTM, and how many layers, what the activation, all the way down to like very granular level. Mm-hmm. And there's more than 900 parameters of these, so you know you get like really detailed. Yeah. But also it includes uh, training parameters like batch size, learning rate, the optimizer, the upper parameter of the optimizer, um, pre-processing parameters mm-hmm. because it really takes. Uh, raw tabular data and um, in a tabular format and does all the transformations that are needed to feed this data into uh, deep learning model mm-hmm. um, and uh, and you know there's also advanced functionalities like you can really easily make it so that the same uh, training process runs on like distributed system um, a distributed cluster by using gray for instance just you know a few lines of the configuration or if you want to do upper parameter optimization, there's also additional few lines of the configuration, and the parameters will be upper optimized mm-hmm. with respect to the ranges that you specify. So it makes um, instead of writing potentially thousands of tens of thousands of low-level machine learning Pytorch code, mm-hmm. you can just write, you know, uh, 10 to 20 lines of a configuration file, and you get basically the same results, right?
1: Yeah. Um, so basically, um, it's compared to AutoML, you can tune more parameters. For data scientists, you have more flexibility and visibility To
0: I would say with respect to AutoML, so at the very beginning when Ludwig was released, um, some people actually called it an AutoML Yeah, tool. I don't completely agree with mm-hmm. that. Uh, Ludwig also has an AutoML package within it that I will talk about in a second. But yeah. if you want to compare, um, Ludwig and AutoML, the main difference is that AutoML is kind of like um, um, a box where you give it the data set and it spits out um, model. Yeah. And um, you don't have a lot of levers and mm-hmm. you don't have like a lot of affordances. You cannot change the process. It's actually designed to abstract away the process of figuring out yeah. what the model is from you. Mm-hmm. And that's its value, right? Right. In the case of Ludwig, um, you can start very really easily. And you, but you get models that are you know, basically default, and you can change everything to get to the level of uh, performance that you care for. Mm-hmm. And so it's an iterative process where you, the data scientist, are the one making these uh, changes according to your understanding of the models of the data, mm-hmm. your knowledge of the domain, and all that is involved there. Right. So you have the actionability. And to get all the way to the single parameter, which also maps into like a Python code base. So you can also go there and change all, all, a single line of code mm-hmm. if you want to. It's also extensible, meaning that you can create your own Python classes, um, give them names, and those names that can be referenced from the configuration. So if you're an expert user that knows how to build like a component of a PyTorch model, or how to write a loss, or how to you know, do anything in the platform, you can build your own components there. So it's extensible. It's a glass box that is extensible mm-hmm. and that you have a lot of levers to change and modify the process. Right.
1: Yeah.
0: And I would say the last piece is that Ludwig also has an AutoML um, uh, package within it, which basically what it makes is gives you a bunch of uh, pre-canned configurations mm-hmm. for specific tasks that you care for. And so it's a nice way, usually, to get started. So, that you have a data set and this AutoML package within Ludwig gives you a bunch of Ludwig configurations. Mm-hmm. You can train them and um, look at their performance, and then maybe you pick the one that performs the best, and you can keep iterating, modifying the parameters, and improving it over time, right? Yeah. So, the AutoML part is like one piece of the iterative process as opposed to be the entire compassing process.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You also uh, wrote a paper about declarative machine learning. so. What is the relationship between Ludwig and declarative
0: ML? Yeah, so Ludwig is a declarative ML mm-hmm. system um, because of the fact that you know, instead of writing mm-hmm. the low level machine learning code, you're actually declaring from the scheme of the data actually what you want, mm-hmm. and then the details of how the model is assembled and the actual code path and process for training it and using it for prediction and mm-hmm. evaluating it. You don't need to, to write them, mm-hmm. right? So that's why it is. Uh, I consider it to be a collective system, right? Yeah. And that paper, um, I wrote it together with Chris, um, uh, Chris Redd, professor from Stanford, that I was working with um, at the time um, after I left Uber. Mm. And the reason for writing that paper is that he also created a similar system to Ludwig that is called Overton. Yeah. It was an internal system at Apple while he was working at mm-hmm. Apple. And when we were chatting, we discovered that there was like, I don't know, like a 90% overlap yeah. in, in, in what I was building in, in, mm-hmm. in the open and what he was building yeah. um, at Apple. And there is also another system called Looper that is developed at Meta mm-hmm. that also follows the same principles, right. providing like a configuration system and makes it easy, making it easy for data uh, scientists and for developers to actually Train and use machine learning models, right? And so we wanted to make it so that all these systems had like um, the similarities among these systems mm-hmm. were captured in like one um, one paper that describes a general uh, uh, the, their general functionality mm-hmm. and also what are like the advantages of all these systems because again they share all these uh, commonalities mm-hmm. and also what are the um, you know potential limitations and things to improve in the future and look forward to in the future,
1: right? Yeah. Um, it's, it's really cool that you open source uh, this ludwig is something people use at facebook or um, apple now it's um, accessible for other people um, who doesn't have access to those closed um, system and I have, I have friends working at uh, um, facebook they're joking with this internal um, declarative system everybody is a config engineer <laughs> of course you have to understand what's going on behind the machine learning system so uh, sometimes people working at large companies they feel um, because their internal tooling is very mature. strong and mature and all they work with is dealing with the configs they they're not like data scientists working at smaller companies they they can try different tools and learn you know what is the uh, most recent ML Ops tools, so sometimes they feel their set is a little bit um, obsolete. So, how do you? Uh, w- what do you think about people using, um, say, a config-based tool versus build their own tools and explore multiple ML Ops tools and then um, build their own system?
0: I think it's pros and cons, mm-hmm. and also it depends on the goals with, yeah. that someone has, right? So if you think about it from a company perspective, um, obviously that makes a lot of sense, mm-hmm. right? Because um, instead of um, having everybody, you know, build their own thing and reinventing the wheel every single time, mm-hmm. they invent the wheel one time, yeah, and then they can reuse it all the time. And the, you know, your friends' capabilities of working with configurations. Mm-hmm. Also, it's great because it makes it possible for them to spend a lot more time on other things that are potentially more valuable, like Mm. actually looking at the data, analyzing, figuring out what are the errors that the model is making, doing deep uh, analysis of that, and then improving the models by also improving the data. Mm. So it's like a more um, human-in-the-loop, data-centric kind of process Mm. that is definitely more useful for achieving better performance than actually tinkering with the single parameter of the models and also you know, going all the way down to implement
1: things right Yeah. Um,
0: and with respect to um, the aspect of you know um, not getting um, like the skill set right? mm-hmm. um, I think it, the same thing can be applied at different levels, right. Um, for instance, uh, when compilers are introduced, um, then people maybe don't need to, uh, not as many people need to know about low-level assembly code. Yeah. Um, is it good or is it bad? Uh, I think in terms of overall productivity, it's substantially better. Because mm-hmm. now many more people can write you know, higher-level uh, kind of code. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's still people who write low-level um, assembly code for like, very mission-critical cases mm-hmm. where that makes particular sense. Right. Yeah, but those are like niche cases, and the long tail is addressed mm-hmm. by higher level languages. Yeah. I think it's the same thing is happening and can be happening um, for machine learning too. And so I think creating the separation of interest of the people who are developing the underneath systems and the people who are like that using these systems um, is healthy for the ecosystem.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and honestly, to make to make another con- concrete example, like. The fact that there is a really robust implementation of um, I don't know gradient boosted machines, there's actually more than one. Like yeah. there's the several robust implementation of uh, gradient boosted machines, means that uh, how many people are re-implementing from scratch mm-hmm. gradient boosted machines? Very, very very few. I would say probably the maintainers of XGBoost of of um, uh, LightGBM like and and and, and, and Scikit Learn are mm-hmm. probably among the very few who are actually doing it. Right? Yeah. But in Excel, because then now how many people are using then XGBoosts in their in their um, in their like modeling tasks? Yeah, many many more people than the ones that would have been able to write a really efficient and, and good implementation. Mm-hmm. Of it, right?
1: Yeah, um, and also if you have a good foundation in you know machine learning in statistics, um, and you know how to code in Python, it's not hard to learn some other tools whenever you need to learn because there are a lot of tools out there it's impossible to learn um everything
0: absolutely yeah
1: when you left uber and joined uh um chris uh, professor chris ray's lab what was the motivation uh to do that
0: yeah so we had in mind the idea of eventually starting a company together Mm -hmm. uh, but we needed some time to you know figure out the uh, details and also yeah. no well, was it story.
1: after Ludwig or before you created? So uh,
0: Ludwig was I, when I actually started working on Ludwig was end of 2016, beginning of 2017. Mm-hmm. When it was open sourced was 2019. Oh, okay, um, I left Uber in 2020 mm-hmm. and joined uh, Chris. Uh, lab in 2020, mm-hmm. and then I started Pridey Base in 2021. Mm-hmm. So there was that gap here between yeah. Uber and the company. Mm-hmm. So we had the idea that we wanted to start a company, but we needed to, well, we wanted to work together on a few things, including this paper, for instance. Yeah. was one of the things that we uh, came out of that you know, mm-hmm. collaboration, I would say. And, um, uh, you know, we were testing out ideas of how to really bring this. Um, this thing to the market, really. Mm. Because we saw that it was working at Apple, at, at Meta, uh, Facebook at the time, um, at Uber, in the open source. And so we thought that you know other organizations around the world would have been um, would be useful for also other organizations. Yeah. But we need to figure out the details of it and to make it so that it's um, um, clear what we are going after with the company.
1: Yeah. And how did you meet Professor uh, Chris
0: there was it's a fun story. So um, when I released um, Ludwig, I think a couple of months later, there was an event at Stanford uh, where it was a conversation between Chris and uh, Jeff Dean, mm. and they were discussing about the uh, future of machine learning infrastructure, mm-hmm. and um, that was recorded for some reason. And um, I don't remember whom I think like a, a Ludwig contributor. Uh, send the link to the recording to me. Mm. I watched it. And during that, you know, conversation, uh, Chris said, Oh, and there is this like new project from uh, Uber called Ludwig that I yeah. think is very, very cool. And so I reached out to him uh, to say thank you really for the public <laughs> shout out. Yeah. And he invited me to give a talk at his lab at Stanford. Mm-hmm. And I went there. It was supposed to be off an hour. It became two hours because we were
1: yeah. Janning a
0: lot mm-hmm. uh, he was asking me a lot of questions mm-hmm. and you know, it was was a lot of really, really entertaining um, time and really in conversation and yeah that, that's how we got to know each other and mm-hmm. then you know that it spiraled out from there and now we're working together
1: oh god so at that time was it a difficult decision um to quit uber and join his lab
0: yeah sure. So at the time uber decided that um I really wanted to reorganize mm-hmm. the way that the ML organization. Uh, uh, ML was done in the company, including the AI organization. Yeah. And there was not much space for this hybrid research and application mm-hmm. uh, that uh, yeah. I was really, that was the main reason why I was there, because mm-hmm. I liked uh, both doing research and applications at the same time.
1: Yeah,
0: uh, And so it was not a hard decision to um, leave Uber at a time because of that reorganization. Yeah. Um, and it was not a hard decision to join Chris, because you know, it was, <laughs> was great. Right. Uh, uh, we were already entertaining mm-hmm. uh, the idea of doing it. And um, so it was not a hard decision. But um, I think it was a little bit harder just because of the fact that it was in full steam pandemic. Mm-hmm. And so that was the, what made it a little bit more tricky than it yeah. could have been. But at the same time, you know, uh, there was nothing I could do about it. So.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, so I know you did a lot of research. Uh, about um, NLP, and then you were especially on uh, question answering. So I definitely want to get your thoughts on large language models. Uh, but before we get to that, uh, since we already talked about your your journey joining a lab, creating declarative ML, um, let's talk about um, what made you want to start uh, PrediBase.
0: Mm. Yeah, so again, as as i mentioned really the realization Mm -hmm. that what i was already doing with ludwig in the open source um, was a thing that could have been valuable Mm -hmm. outside of the you know um, the larger organizations where that was used but and also in 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 the rest of the industry Mm -hmm. that was one of the main motivations and also um, the fact that i was really you know um, interested in um, Working to build a company, mm-hmm. that was something that um, I just scratched the surface of previously in my career. And when I worked at the startup in Dramatic Intelligence, I had yeah. a really good time. I enjoyed mm-hmm. it a lot. And so I wanted to try to replicate the same feeling of mm-hmm. camaraderie, working together, being um, really shoulder to with, shoulder uh, with coworkers. And um, that was you know, a lot of fun for me, and mm-hmm. I enjoyed it. And so I wanted to do it again. Honestly. Yeah. These were the two main motivations for me. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, so Predibase is built on top of Ludwig. And what's the difference between uh, Predibase and
0: Ludwig? A good analogy there is that Ludwig is the engine, while Predibase is the car, mm-hmm. meaning that we're building all sort of components around the engine to make it so that um, organizations uh, and enterprises can use it in the cloud uh, very easily and also adding additional features that someone who would have adopted it um, in their, in their, like, as, as a piece of their mm. platform would have needed to be able to, to make it useful, in yeah. particular components around data connection, components around in, uh, model um, experimentation, tracking, and iteration, mm-hmm. components about deployment of the models um, at you know really, scale, in a really scalable way and um, components around uh, managing all the underlying infrastructure for both distributed training and distributed um, uh, in the cloud. Really right? cool. So all these things are like um, parts of what we're building a base that makes using Bootfix substantially easier. And then we're also adding on top of it a bunch of, um, let's say, peculiar um, um, components that make it easy for people to use it, um, in particular, the graphical user interface, um, Python SDK, so that it can be connected with all the entire Python ecosystem mm-hmm. with Python code, like in notebooks or in scripts or whatever. It is. Yeah, and and also um, we have this new concept that we call PQL, which is an extension of SQL, where you have predictive predicates inside uh, SQL queries mm-hmm. that make it possible to do both, you know, predictive analytics and do both. You know, the kind of things that you do in, in SQL and analyzing, selecting and slicing your data um, at the same time as predicting on, on on the data that you are you know manipulating. Mm-hmm. An example could be instead of writing a simple query for like selecting the customers that spent more than a hundred dollars last month in your platform, you can write a query that says, select those customers and for those customers predict if they're gonna churn next month or not.
1: Yeah. Uh, and uh, do you have some examples of how our customers are using uh, PrediBase? What are the use case? I don't know if you uh, can share some customer.
0: Yeah, so the, the interesting thing is that obviously because it's built on Ludwig, it's mm-hmm. really general. The yeah. platform is really general. So it can be applied to many use cases. Mm-hmm. And the ones that we have seen being um, more used and particularly interesting and unique are the ones that um, are related with uh, multimodal data, mm-hmm. where you have, for instance, text and some metadata, or images and some metadata, or audio and some metadata. And um, other ones that are more, um, let's say, in terms of tasks, more recommender-oriented tasks, mm-hmm. where you also have additional information about, for instance, the items that you're suggesting, and those items include text, image, and... and Audio features on top of the regular, uh, you know, more tabular structured features, and some examples of this are, for instance, there's this company called um, uh, Paradigm that um, uh, what they do is that they're, they're, they're a platform for trading on crypto, and um, basically they're building an alerting system mm. using PrivyBase um, that alerts the user for new. New trades that, that, mean, are, that are possible the in the platform. Um, and um, another company that we're working with um, is like a large US healthcare company, and they're using the platform for many use cases, which include use cases where you have both text and unstructured data, um, some and also images and unstructured data from some medical um, aspects like uh, mammography, using mammography data, for instance, mm. and also for uh, detecting uh, potential issues with. Um, People's respiration yeah. by analyzing the um, audio uh, of their communications mm. with with the doctors, right? Yeah. So it's a wide range, honestly, of different applications that people are mm. using it for.
1: Yeah, and uh, um, so who should use um, base?
0: Yeah, I think there's two buckets. And um, I would say, on one hand, there are like larger enterprises, where there's like teams of data scientists that, by using this platform, can be supercharged and be like substantially faster at um, developing their machine learning projects. And for instance, with some of the organizations that we've been working with, teams that were putting a couple models in production in a year were able to put more than 20 models in production in three months. So there's a substantial increase in um, productivity and throughput by using the platform. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, we want to make it um, uh, available um, for developers, really. So people who want to bring their um, uh, machine learning capabilities into mm-hmm. their product. Yeah. And uh, because of the fact that the configuration system they were based on is um, doesn't require them to write low-level machine learning code, mm-hmm. we can empower them to actually Build the machine learning capabilities in their in their uh, applications right. uh, in a way that is substantially easier uh, and faster.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Um, we'll, we talk a lot, a little bit about um, different type of ML ops tools. So uh, now people are storing their data in different type of cloud providers, and then they might use some other tools like Arise, Weights and Biases, MLflow, etc. So how does um, PrediBase integrate with different type of tools, or are you trying to build everything within PrediBase?
0: Yeah, so I would say, um, in particular for Ludwig, really, mm-hmm. there's many connectors to many different um, open source tools uh, and non-open source tools. There's Wits and Bias is common, mm-hmm. um, MLflow, AimStack. Um, and that makes it very easy to keep track of Ruby training all Ludwig models on all these platforms. Yeah, um, From the PrediBase perspective, um, I would say the, the, the value of Predibase is bringing all these capabilities together in one. Mm-hmm. And I think we can do it um, as opposed to like these companies that are building only one piece of all of that, mm-hmm. and that's like a really valuable piece. Yeah. The example of, of what's in biases is good for like, experiment tracking and mm-hmm. evaluation of models. Mm-hmm. Um, but in order to be able to be used by everybody, they need to be compatible with all yeah. the different systems, like all the different types of models, all the different modalities of interacting mm-hmm. with them. Um, for us, it's simpler. We need to make it work only with living models. And so we can build like a really good um, model evaluation and tracking and management system within Predibase without the need to go outside the Predibase. Mm-hmm. And so we're building all these components to be really uh, working together within the Predibase platform, while at the same time, we're making it very modular and interoperable with other systems, in particular through the Python SDK, mm-hmm. meaning that you can get the data from wherever you want, as long as it's in a data frame format, or in a database data warehouse format, or on a S3 bucket or object store. Then you can like easily uh, pop into the system. And uh, on the Converse, on the output side, you can write the data back into the data source that it's mm-hmm. coming from. Or you can use you know, the models for your time prediction. So um, the uh, REST APIs or gRPC APIs that you have as the output can also be easily hooked into everything else, right?
1: Yeah. Um, and now with the hype of large language models and generative AI, are there uh, capabilities in Ludwig and Predibase to support this uh, this need for developers?
0: Yeah. So in Ludwig, there's, there's a new version, the 80 is coming out, which um, it's literally all about generative. Mm-hmm. Uh, AI, in particular around large language models, mm-hmm. and the fact that we're introducing capabilities for um, using large language models, querying them, mm-hmm. doing um, zero-shot learning, few-shot learning, um, fine-tuning them, and potentially even training them from scratch. Mm-hmm. So all these capabilities will uh, be available in this new version of Blue which, again, if you go on the GitHub page, you can already start to use. It's just the release is not out yet. And in Predibase, we basically, we want Predibase to be the platform for building uh, machine learning projects declaratively. Mm. And that's true for like, predictive uh, machine learning and mm-hmm. also for generative machine learning. From our perspective, it doesn't make a huge difference in terms of the capabilities of the platform. We want to support any machine learning project. really, mm-hmm. right? um, But at the same time, we're building you know, these capabilities into the platform, also by providing UIs that make it easy to iterate over prompts, figuring out things that work particularly well, integrate the prompts with data for doing, again, 0 shot few shot learning, and then uh, fine-tune your models on your data and your use cases um, by never leaving your virtual private cloud, so making it secure, fast, and cheap to do um, in a way that makes it so that um, you don't have to um, Rely on external APIs to do it. You can be the owner of your own IP, the owner of your own natural language models um, forever, really.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because now with the uh, large language models and uh, you know ChatGPT copilot, I see a lot of demos of products using um, OpenAI's um, API or other um, open source large language models, but. It's easy to build a demo, but it's hard to put things in um, production. So, what are some challenges um, when you productionize large
0: language models? Yeah, so many of the companies that we've been uh, chatting with that are, you know, uh, um, considering using these new capabilities that we're introducing in the Mm platform, what they're telling us is that, um, again, all of the things that I mentioned are actually challenges for them. One is the security and the fact that in some cases they cannot have. Data uh, leave their, um, their, their their clouds or yeah. their, their, their premises mm. um, for the nature of that data maybe it's like private information or customer information or anything like that right so it cannot really leave that's one aspect the other aspect is even when it can leave the premises mm. um, in whenever you get to a point where the amount of interactions amount of API calls that you need to do uh, passes a certain threshold, it becomes too expensive. Yeah. And finally, if you have above a certain amount of, um, of data that you're actually uh, working with, for instance, streaming cases, um, in those cases, really, it becomes infeasible to um, wait for the model answers in terms of latency. Mm. So it's just um, the current LLM APIs are just too slow yeah. to be able to do that. And so these are all the the three things, really, that we are trying to address all at once um, with the capabilities that we're introducing in Mm -hmm. And uh,
1: what are some uh, tips for people who want to fine tune their large language models?
0: Yeah, I would say um, the tip is, first of all, try to figure out if you actually need to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, Because um, in some cases, Doing few-shot learning and basically interacting with um, either previous data, both in form of potential like examples for the model, or uh, in the form of like snippets of text or whatever else is, um, you know, the structure of your data, mm-hmm. and augmenting the prompts that you're already um, creating with this uh, additional information uh, can go a long way mm-hmm. and can improve the model performance. Substantially, without yeah. the need to actually doing the fine tuning,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and then if that performance is not enough, then that's the time when mm-hmm. you should probably consider starting doing fine tuning. But it is, um, and you know, we're trying to make it as inexpensive as possible, but mm-hmm. it's still a relatively expensive process as opposed to just trying out doing a few shot learning. Right? Mm-hmm. So I would say first try that.
1: Yeah, um, and in general, what are some besides say? Um, summarizing internal documents, um, make the search for you know text-based documents better, um, creating some chatbots for customer service. So what are some new use cases you observed um, for large language models?
0: Yeah, so one thing I'm fascinated by, and you know, I'm liking it a lot, um, there's also both like, open source products and some companies working on that, ESD, mm-hmm. uh, if you want, Using the language models as an orchestration mechanism mm-hmm. for interacting with different modules that each of them are like specifically doing something um, really you know tailored to a specific thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, an example of that is you know having calculations, so you can have like a function that does calculation, and then the language model learning how to interact with that function, so that it doesn't have to do the calculation, but mm-hmm. can just ask that module. To do that calculation, uh, or like another thing could be, you know, doing other tasks. For instance, with images that the language model may not know how to do, mm. but if there's, um, you know, interface or a function call that they can call to actually do these things, then they can become basically the dispatcher of um, that makes it possible to interact mm. with all these uh, sub-modules, and that's really fascinating to me. Like there's a company called Fixi that does that how what a company called fixing uh-huh. that that. okay and there's a bunch of open source products mm-hmm. also that are you know uh, being created around that mm-hmm. and that's something that I think it's really really viable and very interesting
1: yeah have you tried to play with it automate some of your own tasks
0: I tried I think these things are still in their infancy yeah uh, so uh, I wasn't able to actually fully uh, mm-hmm. automate some of my tasks through that yeah but I think you know, with work uh, mm-hmm. they will improve over time
1: yeah. So now with a lot of hype, uh, everything you see on social media, people sharing those tips about chat GPT, and then there's every few days there's some updates on large language models. Um, what's your advice for data scientists to learn while being focused? Because I feel a lot of anxiety is also generated. There's a lot of um, distractions out there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's. Information overflow, mm-hmm. right? There's there's too much information about it. There's yeah. too much um, content created around it, too many papers, yeah. too many everything, right? So um, I would say the way I approach it is twofold. On one hand, try to identify sources of information that you kind of trust and believe to be um, you know, sources that you can you can you can rely on and that give you enough amount of information. It makes you feel like you are um, in the loop of what's happening mm-hmm. without overwhelming you. And on the other hand, to just give up on the idea to be able to keep up with everything because yeah. it's just not possible. Right. And so just accept that you're gonna have a limited amount, uh, uh, um, let's say, um, a limited amount of information, but. Um, to keep that information broad mm-hmm. so that then whenever you feel that there's something that you find particularly interesting, then you can go deep on that specific thing. Um, then when, when when the need arises, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, I think it's okay to be a little bit delayed. Um, sometimes uh, a model or uh, a product um, developed, say, a month ago, maybe it's not Relevant anymore, so sometimes just let things, let time help you filter out some (laughs) projects. Uh, That's what I do because I'm lazy, also lazy. I don't want to always learn all the new tools. uh, Especially if you think about like Lindy effect. If something have been uh, there for a long time, it's probably gonna still be there. For example, I think something like SQL people are still gonna use it. Um, And uh, so you, you talk about large language model can also help people. Uh, orchestrate workflows so for for example if I'm a, a data scientist I work on ml tasks using just tabular data um, but not text data mm. say the use case I work on is fraud detection based on bank transactions or uh, I'm predicting sales using time series data will large language models impact my workflow or any ml tools I use so
0: I mean the, the- the answer is that for what we have right now, mm-hmm. um, and if you think about general language models, the answer is probably no. Um, although I think that when people start to train their own like fine tune language models on specific tasks, that, then the answer can be yes. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, usually these tasks involve a lot of like, super specific domain knowledge. Yeah. And because of that, something that is trained on say, the internet as mm-hmm. its data source may not be the best, you know, source of truth and solutions for these specific um, tasks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I believe that you know we're going to see more of the technology behind the language models used for these tasks for sure, and the language the models themselves to be fine-tuned and trained for helping with these tasks more realistically. And also, pursue sure, if for the specific f- transaction fraud that would be useful or not? Probably no. not. But um, overall, I think we're going to see more of the the, the very least same technologies applied to that.
1: Right. So large language models might um, uh, be useful in different domains of data science. It's just, uh, I guess, a matter of time of how we are going to um, going to use it and how we get kind of fine-tuned using the context of that specific domain.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, uh, but I also think that you know the specifics of the transaction itself, for mm-hmm. instance, that may not be the best task to be doing with large models in general. Yeah. Right? But maybe the language model can produce some, you know, um, additional information for them for for, for transactions that could be mm-hmm. useful for then evaluating them more fully. There's there's a lot of um, let's say Potential uh, things that one could do. Right now, I don't see that being like the killer application, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And uh, there's a lot of discussion around oh, will large language models or AI based tools replace data scientists? I think if you have worked on any data science project, you know uh, you still need to talk to stakeholders, align their interests, and work with engineers on deployment. Maybe some of the work will be simplified, but I think. Uh, you know, I, I don't think data scientists will be automated, but uh, it's a possibility that data science team will become smaller. Um, so, what do you think about um, how how do data science today remain competitive in the in the industry?
0: I think so. I don't know if data science team will become smaller. I think there could be like a, a actually. Um, uh, flywheel effect. Mm. W- w- they could actually become larger. Yeah. And if you think about, again, programming, right? And to go back to that example before of mm-hmm. compilers, um, if there were 10,000 assembly com- um, uh, programmers before,
1: yeah.
0: when C or any let's say, larger, like a higher level uh, language was introduced and opened up the possibility for more people to do it. Um, mm. Maybe there were less jobs for assembly programmers now mm-hmm. than there were like in the '70s, but there are more jobs for programmers overall now than there were in the right. '70s. So you know, these tools can be again an enabling factor mm-hmm. for actually doing more data science, doing more machine learning, which means more jobs. Yeah. Maybe that doesn't mean that it, that you know what. Data scientists are doing today is exactly what they will be doing mm-hmm. tomorrow. Yeah, but in general, the skill sets will translate really well.
1: Mm-hmm. So, what do you think about some new job families? Um,
0: it's very be- hard to predict it, but mm-hmm. I can imagine that it could be like a little bit more of a fragmentation. So maybe there's um, people who whose job will be nursing models and looking at their performance and mm-hmm. making sure and you know working with data to modify and improve. The data aspects to make the models work better, as opposed to people that now maybe are working more on models, for instance, right? That's one option. Or maybe the people that are working on models, they will be like, you know, like compilers, engineers today. They will be the ones working on the compilers level of the, like at uh, the lower level, right? Right. Instead of having everybody working at the same level, maybe there's multiple levels mm-hmm. and people working at all the different levels with different requirements and, and job descriptions, right? That is something that could happen.
1: Yeah. And what do you think about uh, in terms of skill set? What are more important today compared to, say, a data scientist five years ago?
0: So I would say one thing that in my mind is always, always going to be important is the basics. Mm. If you study the basics and you're strong with the basics, then you can, you know, move from one level to another and from one job within a domain to another very, very easily. Yeah. And so what it's not going to be there 10 years from now, 20 years from now is, mm-hmm. I don't know, like specific knowledge or a specific library. Mm-hmm. Like if we can use really well PyTorch today, maybe 10 years from now there's something else. So that's not going to be as relevant as, as it is today, right? Yeah. But if you know how, um, how like, um, How stochastic gradient descent works, Mm. and in general how optimization works, that's very likely still gonna be there in a form of another ten years from now, right? Right. So the deeper you go, the more to the basics you go, the more reusable that that, that knowledge you gain is across the board.
1: Yeah, Um, I agree with that. Um, And then uh, during your PhD, you research question answering, NLP, and semantics. So you finish your PhD. 2015, before the Transformer paper was released. So, what was the uh, NLP research interest back then versus today? What are the some biggest changes? Yeah, I think
0: over time, um, NLP research has moved a lot from more. Um, I say more. Again, I don't want to overgeneralize, but. You know from more linguistics oriented and logic based um, systems, mm-hmm. gradually more and more towards machine learning. At that moment, it was the very beginning um, of people starting to apply deep learning uh, to NLP. Up until then, mostly of what people were doing was applying statistical uh, models and machine learning models mm-hmm. to, to language, right? Yeah, for instance, now we're calling those things large language models, but you know. Language models, in terms of just n-gram probabilities, were there since, I, in I like, probably at, least at the very least the '90s, probably even earlier. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, the uh, the difference was like a gradual transition towards new kind of um, approaches towards machine learning, and now there's an even like different stat um, function really, because um, now there are basically NLP, well, papers at NLP conferences mm-hmm. that you could argue they're not even machine learning anymore. They're you know, using the um, large language models as a, as a computational device. Yeah. They're not even you know, changing anything of the large language models. They're using the inputs and outputs and analyzing those inputs and outputs to the large language model as the goal of what they're doing, analyzing the text, for instance, in a specific case. Of 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 that, and it's like a new a new entirely new development, which is interesting to see, and it's like kind of a odds. Um, I can imagine that probably in the near future there could be also split there, right? There could be like conferences that are more about the um, machine learning aspects of NLP, and conferences mm-hmm. that are more about the um, interaction with large language models aspects of NLP, right? Right.
1: Yeah. Um, and what about tools? For example, what was your tech stack while you were working at Uber versus today?
0: Yeah, so say even before Uber, the tech stack was um, when I actually started working. Even 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 before Uber mm-hmm. was mostly a Java stack, and we were using like more statistical uh, modeling techniques, uh, like topic modeling. And I was using, um, you know, more Distributional semantics um, techniques that didn't have, like, you could argue that, you know, um, word to back was one of the most popular uh, techniques in that field, but there were like 70 years of research before that and many techniques and many tools that people were using. But again, at that moment in time, Java was mostly the, 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 the Java stack, was mm-hmm. mostly the, the, the one that people were using. And um, for example, I Writing, I did an internship at Yahoo, and I was writing um, map reduce jobs mm-hmm. in Java from scratch, which I don't think there's anyone is doing it today probably, yeah. or very very few people mm-hmm. that are doing it today, right? And then um, over time is switched more to the Python stack. I think at the moment in 2015, like when I when I joined um, IBM, there was probably the, Moment when I started to do the switch more on to like a, a Python stack, and mm-hmm. uh, because in Python you had um, more uh, machine learning oriented yeah. uh, technologies, and mm-hmm. you know, scikit-learn was available, and we started using it for some tasks, and and then gradually moving towards the more deep learning um, frameworks, starting using um, TensorFlow and Teano. And then, and then when PyTorch was released, for switched on top of that. Yeah. Mm.
1: yeah. Um, so what are, what are some of your um, beliefs that about, could be about machine learning, or more specifically large language model, that you feel mo- some people might disagree with you?
0: Mm. Well, more than disagree with, I think there are things that are unpopular, or that mm-hmm. people may not know about. That I find particularly interesting, okay. and I think if researched with the same amount of attention that you know, other research um, is 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 getting now, or has been getting in the near in in the, in the last few years, I think could bring advances similar um, to what we've been seeing from from more deep learning techniques, for instance. Um, but you know, there's not the same amount of research going on. Here. Mm-hmm. Um, and some examples of that is anything that is non-gradient based learning. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, research in um, like self self-organizing um, kind of systems or like um, genetic algorithms, evolutionary evolutionary approaches, uh, is super super interesting, and I think has a lot to um, to bring to the table even if it has not been explored as much. I mean, there are conferences specifically on that, mm-hmm. but it's not in the uh, foreground of the research community right mm-hmm. now, right? And so um, I think there's, there's a lot of untapped potential there.
1: Yeah. And then in terms of industries, do you feel um, there is going to be an industry, for example, I don't know, healthcare or finance that will be the Next industry to be um, revolutionized by
0: AI. Um, if I also think immediately about the next one mm-hmm. or the one that is already being um, revolutionized, is probably um, content creation. Mm-hmm. I think in both, you know, from like a purely textual perspective, but also from like a um, like a visual, video, audio. Yeah, like it's already happening, really. Mm-hmm. The same answer three months ago may have felt differently, and now there's already there's already a lot going on, right? And it may be for good or for bad, right? There are some aspects of uh, the content creation mm-hmm. that um, maybe they are not the right mm-hmm. things to automate, and other things that you know people would gladly want to automate. I think we will find a balance eventually, mm-hmm. where. Um, the technology that we're developing will be used as tools by the right people that know how to use them and know how to, you know, do content creation to begin with, right? That's, in my mind, the state that we will converge to.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, and also, nowadays, there are a lot of different type of uh, assistants. Mm-hmm. Um, if you think about co-pilot, uh, I know in base there's also a uh, function co-pilot for, for data scientists, and there's going to be maybe other type of co- uh, co-pilot um, for, say, on Facebook, social media, or, or different type of tools we use. Um, and uh, so what do you think about us with all those AI assistants? Do you feel that will make us more efficient, or do you think there is a... Potential that we'll lose our own like independent critical thinking. So, what is the best way using think to use um, copilots? So,
0: I don't think we're gonna lose the independent thinking. It's just a matter of how much we're gonna uh, train it and exercise it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think the, the the problem is is that if who runs the show, that's that's the important thing, right? If if the show is a large machine. And humans become cogs in that machine mm-hmm. is not great. If humans run the show and use the cogs and the machines that are like the yeah. assistants, then that's the, the right way to, to see it. Mm-hmm. But that it's more like, um, uh, if you want, a societal perspective of what is important, right? Yes. Is like the well being of human beings the first um, sort of a business? And if that is the case, then I think we're going to do well. If we make something else the first order of business, um, if we make just efficiency the first order of business, then I don't think that that, 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 could, be, that could lead to like a situation where it's not ideal mm-hmm. for, for, for humans, right? But again, we make a decision as a society, right? Yeah. So, um,
1: so how do we make sure humans are running the show?
0: It's a difficult question. And I would say, in general, we need to make sure that people understand things for real. Mm -hmm. Like in this case, these technologies, they need to understand for real what they do, why they do it, Mm -hmm. and um, how to use them correctly, incorrectly, and what are the boundaries really. Because there may not be like a really correct way or not, Mm -hmm. just what it is. If I really understand what it is, Mm -hmm. then I can make my own decisions on how to use it, right? Yeah. If you have that understanding, then at the very least, you can make a decision on um, how much impact do you want technology mm-hmm. to have on you. If you do not understand how it works, it's much more difficult to have that determination. Mm-hmm. So I would say, I wouldn't say that's it's, it's the silver bullet, but it's first step for sure. Yeah.
1: Um, and uh, so now you are a CEO of a company. Um, so when you look back at your career, um, what are some, from a CEO's perspective, or as a, as a manager, what are some um, um, advice you give your younger self as a, you know individual contributor?
0: That's interesting. Um, yeah, so, I mean, now I have a little bit more of a different perspective, obviously. And it's more of a bigger picture perspective, while before I may have been really you know, super focused on the relatively narrow thing that I was working at each moment in time. Right? Mm-hmm. And so maybe the advice that I would give myself is to try to keep constantly a narrow point of view, mm-hmm. even while working on something very specific, because that makes it possible for you to kind of anticipate next moves a little bit better and understand more broadly the implications of what you're doing.
1: Right? Mm-hmm. so even if you're working on something specific try to broaden your scope a little bit yeah Um, and uh, um, what are some mistakes you made in your
0: career i would say maybe um, not to to say the same thing again but Mm. maybe during my career i've been at moments very focused on on something um maybe not paying as much attention mm-hmm. to what was happening around me. And so I may have been, <clears throat> maybe just to make a concrete example, yeah. adopting some technologies mm-hmm. a little bit later than I would have wanted, mm-hmm. uh, that in retrospect I could have done. If I was more receptive and more listening and understanding to what was going on, yeah. I could have been like a little bit more ahead of the curve in the mm-hmm. past. Um, but at the same time, honestly, one needs to think that uh, there are some cases where investing time on learning new things and new technologies mm-hmm. before they are solidified, that may be also a little bit detrimental sometimes. Yeah. So as you mentioned, you know, learning something that in a in a month from now is not going to be relevant anymore, it may not be the most the best use of your time. Right? Mm-hmm. So, um, certainly, you know, being more open to listen to what is happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a little bit listening to my own conviction, that, mm. that would have been like positive for
1: sure. Yeah. And uh, so in general, say there is a new technology, and if you have decided you want to learn it, how do you um, learn?
0: Um, I would say like, from a really practical perspective, mm-hmm. usually I start with a very small um, bit of information. So like if it's a paper, I read the abstract. Or if it's like a new library, I, if there's a video on YouTube, maybe I watch a video okay. on YouTube about it. And the shorter, the better, mm. to get like a really high-level understanding. Mm. And that makes it possible for me to determine if I believe that there's enough value for me to dive deeper. Yeah. And then I increase the um, uh, scope gradually. Mm. And, and then I get to the point where I have try to have dedicated time. For study and whatever study means, like could be reading the full paper and the corollary papers, or may mean reading through the documentation of a project. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, usually, the final step is to have like a micro project or anything like concrete to apply what I just learned. to like implement that paper, or look at the code of that mm-hmm. paper and use it for doing something else. That is not what is written in the paper.
1: Yeah.
0: Or if it's like a new library, to use it in a concrete project. And maybe even just a toy is sufficient to mm-hmm. get to get started. Yeah. And then, um, if needed, then cycle back. Like mm-hmm. saying, now that I have used it, what did I learn? Is there something else that I you know, maybe reading the paper or relooking at the documentation after having used it right. opens up a little bit more. So it's an iterative process of like broadening and broadening mm-hmm. over time, up to the point where of diminishing returns.
1: Yeah. So you learn the high level and then try to learn through doing. And when you have some questions, you can always come back to the kind of finer yeah. grains of details.
0: And a little bit different from what other people I see other people doing. So there's other people that I see like really start from doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I usually start from what is for me is understanding mm-hmm. and then i do yeah and then i go back to understand and then mm-hmm. iterate i alternate Iiterate, among these yeah. bands, right? mm-hmm. um, there's people who are like prefer only the theoretical understanding and only look at the mm-hmm. papers people who only look at the uh, code or just look at the like tinkering of things is the way that they learn about them mm-hmm. for me it's a mix of both and alternating between them is the best way for
1: me yeah yeah that's a great way to learn um, and what is a important feedback that has changed your career?
0: So I don't think there was like one specific feedback, really, but more, I would say observation, mm. um, from like former managers, yeah. like people that I've seen mm. doing great things. Mm-hmm. But I would say, um, maybe one observation of how one specific person that I worked with in the past and I'm you know, super you know, um, happy to have worked with and, and, and super humbled by having worked with them was Peter Dayan. Mm-hmm. Um Basically, one thing that he was always doing when we were working, uh, when he was doing a sabbatical with us at Uber AI is that at the end of every presentation that he was attending, he would um, ask questions. And those questions usually were incredibly fitting, meaning that most of the people who received those questions started to think back at the things that they presented and the work that they've done, mm-hmm. and realized that, really, they should have asked those questions to themselves at the right. beginning. So they made them rethink mm-hmm. from scratch what they were doing yeah. and so. What I gather from that is to be on the outlook for like when you work on something and you go straight into a path, you need a moment. In this case, someone, mm-hmm. but maybe the someone could be yourself to ask again the questions at the beginning that make you reevaluate what you have done so far, and maybe that leads to a better path, right?
1: Right. Like why we're doing what we're doing. Sometimes we get into the technical detail or forgot. The uh, initial motivation, um, yeah, to have alignment with ourselves. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, so now, as a CEO, when you hire a engineer or data scientist, what are some important qualities that you look
0: for? So on one hand, there are some technical aspects, obviously. You know, mm-hmm. They need to be able to, um, for us specifically, to. You know, do the job. Yeah. And so what we usually try to do is to make interviews that kind of look like what people would do um, if they were to join us. Right. Um, and that's the best way to, it's like the more direct kind of feedback you can get, right? Um, on the other hand, um, I try also to probe for like um, more fundamental understanding and fundamental mm-hmm. uh, knowledge. Because that, for me, is a proxy of how malleable and yeah. how adaptable uh, this person will be over time, and how mm-hmm. capable of like doing different things and jumping on new projects, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, how they will be capable of doing that over time, and and then there's like an aspect of uh, can I personally work together with this person fruitfully, like from a, a human point of view, right? Yeah me and the general in general the company right because i've been um we've been building um company culture around what you know the founders at the beginning felt was was the um, people that they were um, happy to work with mm-hmm. and honestly that that, it, that it, for a startup that, that is like you cannot do it without that right you need to work because you're working shoulder to shoulder and you need to be um really at the very least compatible with these people and work mm-hmm. together so, this is like not something specific for the other scientists, but for, for everybody, really. Yeah,
1: yeah. And uh, so, um, why are you name Ludwig Ludwig?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, it, it, it's a secret, and usually I try not to disclose it. <laughs> okay. No, it's it's uh, it's named after Ludwig Wittgenstein, a philosopher from the first half of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. and. There's a video that I put up on on, on YouTube where people can search for it. I mean, nobody has watched it. but um, That basically tries to connect the ideas in um, uh, Mm structuralism and the general ideas on the philosophy of language. It was one of the things that he was working on towards the uh, second half Mm -hmm. of his career, if you want. Um, All the way down to the development in um, NLP, the linguistics, and the connection with actually the um, machine learning that I see today. Mm. So in my mind, these all these things connect. Um, also published a paper with a friend of mine, Jacopo uh, Otagavue, on um, in a like um, uh, a philosophy journal about mm. it, and uh, people can search search for it. I think it's fun.
1: Cool. Yeah, we can link it to the show notes. So how has philosophy or what specific ideas from philosophy has, you know, impacted you?
0: Uh, I would say there's many different ways and many different aspects. Um, One thing that I'm finding more and more um, valuable is um, looking back at moral philosophy and that finds that Helps me find, you know, um, some grounding in moments like the one where we're living these days, mm-hmm. of um, uh, where a lot of change happened, of yeah, things, right. And in particular, like I, I like to read the Stoics, and in particular, Marcus Aurelius, mm-hmm. um, that is something that you know keeps me grounded and gives me um, a lot of, um, you know, um, calm. Yeah. In how to then approach uh, change.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. So um, before we wrap up, what are you excited about? Um, could be your personal life. It could be your career this year.
0: Oh well. I mean, with the you know release uh, of the general availability of Kubernetes, mm-hmm. that's definitely the most exciting thing uh, in my in my uh, happening in my in my work life, for sure, right? Mm-hmm. Um, other than that, there are some developments that I'm seeing around that I'm you know, excited about. And in particular, I'm, I think um, there's this interface between um, uh, machine learning and AI in general and video games that is developing in a way that is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing what people can build with like autonomous agents in like. Worlds um, and like NPCs in in video games, Mm. and how people are making them uh, will be making them substantially more um, autonomous, substantially more um, interactive, and um, I wouldn't say human like, but at the very least, much more um, uh, make it possible to have a dialogue with those characters. Yeah, I see that the, the fringe of. AI and video games to be like a really exciting place. And mm-hmm. I'm looking, uh, excited to see what, what people will come up
1: with. Yeah, and you got into machine learning because there are interests of video games.
0: Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and for me, like it's kind of the current um, convergence of these kind of technologies kind of mm-hmm. closes the loop. Right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And do you feel in the future uh, you will have a side project or build something? Maybe, maybe,
0: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there will be a lot of fun, and I will have a lot of fun doing it. Um, I think that um, building the infrastructure to actually enable that, that will be, you know, I think in pretty much could be a good infrastructure for enabling that, for
1: instance. Yeah, that would be really cool. There's a funny story of how me and uh, Piero met. We actually met through another guest that has been on the podcast, Kyle Crean, and actually we talked about graph neural network. On the episode, and then I met Piero around that time. I was still work at Amazon, but I was looking for some opportunity in, in startups. And now I worked at Petibase, um, creating um, some educational content, working with um, some uh, Ludwig open source. So I'm also very excited uh, now our product has launched and more people can uh, use it. So if um, uh, our listeners want to, um, get in touch with you, learn more about um, your your journey, or want to learn more about uh, Ludwig or Predibase? Where can um, I? Yeah, them?
0: so there's plenty of things available on the web about it. Um, there's you know Ludwig Open Source, Ludwig.ai website. There's you know Predibase.com where we have a lot of blog posts, some of which mm-hmm. you're helping write <laughs> here. Um, the. Um, uh, there's my personal website um, where you know I list a bunch of things that I've worked on, projects, papers that I published, mm. and all of that. So there's a lot of stuff there if you're interested. Um, and you know, feel free to reach out to me on social media, on like um, Twitter, or LinkedIn are the ones that I use the most. So I'm a little bit of a lurker more than an active <laughs> poster, but you know, um, yeah, the are, those are the places where people can reach out to me.
1: Great. Um, yeah, thanks again for coming to the show, and I uh, really enjoyed the uh, conversation.
0: Likewise. Thank you so much, Lidian.